God's Word together. And, and I get the privilege of wrapping up this whole Joshua thing. Okay, Have you guys enjoyed our study through Joshua? I really, really have. And I have studied the book you know, several times, but I really felt like this time I really enjoy the format that we have here at Redemption and that you know, we have the, the, the passage gets preached and then you know, we study it the next week and it just kind of allows us to dig in a little bit deeper than maybe we would if we just heard a sermon on Sunday morning. So I really enjoy that and I really enjoy uh, just this whole study. What, what, has some of the, what are some of the things that God has shown you through this study? It's okay to answer back. It's okay. So what are some of the things that God has maybe shown you uh, through the study in the book of Joshua? Anybody? God is faithful. We're we're not all the time, but God is. Anybody got anything else? Yeah. How important it is to cling to the Lord. I love that that oh that was such a great a great phrase, clinging to the Lord. Anybody have anything else? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have to do that. God is telling us that we have to take that kind of step and put ourselves out there and see what the Lord has for us. And so as we begin to kind of wrap up this, this book, um, I like to go ahead and kind of tell you, I usually only have kind of one main point to my sermon. And uh, this week, I like to kind of give it to you at the beginning so you can be thinking about it. Uh, and, and my sermon this week, the main point is this. God was... God is, and God will work out His plans and promises to completion. God was, God is, and God will work out His plans and promises to completion. So if you have your Bible, you can turn over to the end of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. It's page 160 in this Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these home with you. That's part of the reason we put them in the, in the seat back in front of you is so that you can take one home. If you don't have a Bible, this is great. The first part of this, uh, this Bible has a really great introduction, has some good information. But if you don't have a Bible, you can feel free to take that one home with you. But we're going to be in page, uh, page 160, Joshua chapter 24, verse, down in verse 29. So if we want to, let's go ahead and let's stand. And we're going to read this little bit of passage here about the death and burial of Joshua, and then we're going to get into uh, some other things here. So starting in verse 29 of Joshua chapter 24, it says, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timonath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the peace of the land that Jacob, uh, Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, which was given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. All right, you may have a seat. Be praying for Pastor Jimbo. I know he's anxious to be back. I, I see him occasionally during the week, and 
I know he really misses all of you, and I'm reminded this week, again, as I was kind of helping him a little bit with his project, this isn't a, a vacation sabbatical, it's a writing sabbatical for him, and he's working on something that is very important. And I love that he chose, um, and obviously we know it's his passion, this, this revitalization uh, thing that's going on across the Southern Baptist Convention, but what he's working on seriously will have um, a great impact to the kingdom of God. So it's good that he has taken time out of his schedule to kind of dedicate himself to it and to try to get it done. And a lot of people are interested in what he's doing. It really will have a great impact, not only to the kingdom of God, but other churches who were like this church, who need to be revitalized, who need uh, to get things going in a better direction. So be praying for him. So as I begin this morning, I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a sucker for a twist ending. I love watching movies, and I love watching movies that just have uh, just this, like you watch the whole movie, and you're like, this is a great movie, but then something happens in the last few minutes or the last five or ten minutes. And I don't know about you, I'm always one of those people that always watches the time, even if I'm watching a show. Like, you feel like it's about to wrap up, and then you look at it like, oh, no, they still got 10 minutes left or 15 minutes left. Like, this is not over. There's something else that's about to happen here. One of my favorite movies that, that just kind of has a twist ending, if you've never seen it, it's called The Prestige. Anybody ever seen the movie The Prestige? If you haven't, it's really worth seeing. It's a Christopher Nolan movie, and I really love his movies. But basically, the idea is that there's two magicians who are kind of battling for su- magician supremacy and, and, and like... Uh, in the 1800s, kind of, and they're, they're out, out doing each other kind of trick for trick, and, and this one just kind of consistently is beating the other, and they, he just can never figure out why. He can never figure out why. And if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. Uh, but the reality is, at the end of the movie, okay, you come to find out one of the magician who just is constantly besting the other one actually has a twin, and it's in the last few minutes that, that it basically goes back and gives you this flashback of all the different things that happen across the whole movie. It's a fantastic movie. Even though I spoiled the ending, you should still watch it, okay? It's still really, really good. Now, you'll know that, and you'll be able to maybe pick up on some of those things as you're watching it. But I love twistings, and, and, and there's lots of other movies that have those too. Is is probably famous one-liners here, you know. Star Wars, Luke, I am your father. That was just a twisted ending that no one expected or even thought was coming, and it just kind of defined things. There's lots of maybe in your movies. One of my favorites was uh, The Planet of the Apes. I watched it as a kid, just seeing it. You know, you got Charleston Heston there, and he's riding this horse on a beach, and all of a sudden, you think this whole thing is happening on some other world. Like he's an astronaut, he's landing on some other world, and then the last few minutes, he goes around the corner, and what does he see? The Statue of Liberty, and he just, just falls on the ground and just, just cries because he can't believe what is happening there. Just those little twist endings that happen that somehow define the whole movie. Another thing that I like, kind of like endings are, are the most important part, if you watch the Olympics, I love watching the Olympics, and really the race is great, but it's all about what happens there at the ending because things can change. You know, I love watching Michael Phelps as he was swimming and all that kind of stuff. And just, just the ending sometimes can really make the whole thing. As well, if you're in, into running, which obviously I am not, but if you're into running, you know, it's really starting the race is the easy part. The hard part is at the end where you're tired and you're exhausted and you have to keep going to cross the finish line. And the reality is in this passage, if we have read this story up to this point, Man, it would, be a, it would be a good story. 
it would be a good story. But the reality is there are other things that happen that we're going to get to that help kind of frame the context of everything that happened. So let's look over in Joshua 24 again. And here it starts out to say, it says, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance, and Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mount, mountain of Gash. Joshua lived a good life. He was, and I love that it gives him this title, servant of the Lord. He served God from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And I love is just as we had heard over the last several weeks, he was constantly like, listen, guys, I'm on my way out. I just want to, I just want to remind you, there's one more thing I need to tell you. He's kind, of like, he's kind of like going out the door, but then coming back in like, oh, I forgot to tell you one more thing. And he goes out, no, I forgot to tell you one more thing. Remember, serve the Lord. Love him with all your heart. You know, walk with him. Do all these things. And I love that Joshua as a leader is consistently reminding the people of God of what God expects out of them. But man, what a great thing to be known for, that he was the servant of the Lord. Is there really anything better? And, and I said this in our, in our Sunday school group um, a couple weeks ago. I don't ever really feel like Joshua gets his like, dues, okay? Like, because when you look back from the Israelites' perspective, you've got you know, Abraham, and you've got Moses, and you've got David, and you've got Solomon. But somehow, Joshua never really makes that list. And by all accounts, there is nothing in his life where he did not honor and serve the Lord his entire life. There was not one negative thing that was said against him. You know, he doesn't really always get, he has no record of him disobeying the Lord. He was always faithful to bring the people of God back to the Lord. He was constantly reminding them of God's faithfulness and promises. And I love that even as a young man, before they even entered the promised land, he's like, hey, God's got this. So even from a young, young man all the way through his life to 110 years old, he served the Lord faithfully. What an example for us. And I don't know about you, can you imagine to live to be 110 years old? Now, I know sometimes in Bible that's not necessarily all that old, but it's old today. And there are people who live to be 110 years old. You know, we don't have anybody here that's 110, do we? I don't think so. Okay, good. <laughs> but can you imagine what it would be like to live for 110 years even now, what the things you would have, have seen over the last 110 years? You know, life is a long race. Life is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And for Joshua to dedicate his life, to live faithfully, to serve the Lord all the way through, man, what a triumph. He was leading the people of Israel. When, he, when they crossed over the Jordan, he was already old. Okay, He wasn't a spring chicken by any means at that point. And I love, it kind of reminds me of what Caleb said. You remember when we were in Joshua, I think chapter 14, and Caleb was talking about like, hey, hey, I'm, I'm 85 years old, and I'm just as strong today as I was back then. And, and so Joshua and, and Caleb both, they were kind of, in my mind, I just have this kind of scrappy old man kind of picture of them. And, and they just kept serving the Lord and kept serving the Lord and kept serving the Lord. And he had this heritage that went on. Because if you look in verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. He held them to serve the Lord. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And all who had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. 
generation and passing that on to the next generation. They remembered the great things that God had done. You know the impact of a life by the legacy that it leaves behind, don't you? You know the impact of a life by the legacy that it leaves behind. So I ask us today, how or what type of legacy are you leaving? Joshua left one of serving the Lord faithfully. Israel heeded his example for generations to come after that. And he goes on to say that you know, everyone who had known all the work of the Lord, uh, known all the work that the Lord did for Israel, they served the Lord. And I want us to hold on to that phrase there. It says, who had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Because that's important, because we're going to get to something in just a few minutes, and I want us to remember that it's important for us to help people remember what the Lord has done in our life. So it goes on in verse 32, it says, As for the bones of Joseph, and the people of Israel brought up from Egypt and buried them at Shechem, in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Ham, uh, bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, and it became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. They are faithfully doing the things that God wants them to do. They bring Joseph's remains, they bury it where he wished to be buried. And then finally, it kind of ends in verse 33. Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. So even Aaron's son died, and they buried him at Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, in which had been given him the hill country of Ephraim. And so ends the book of Joshua. You know, it's a good ending, but it's not necessarily the whole story. It's the end of Joshua's story, but it's not necessarily the end of the story that God is writing. And it's definitely not the end of the story of what the Israelites are going to be doing. Because the reality is, in order for us to finish well, we'll just take, some, take a few moments here to kind of look at a Joshua as a person. What does it take for us to finish well? I, and things, some things I just jotted down pretty quickly, one of those is sacrifice. If we want to finish well like Joshua finishes well, we have to sacrifice. And what does that mean? It sacrifices us just as if we were running a race or running a marathon. We would have to prepare our lives to be able to obey and serve the Lord. We would have to give up comfort but when we're serving the Lord. We wouldn't be able to do what is comfortable for us. We'd have to give up our time. Another thing I thought of it takes is grit. And Jimbo has really turned me on to this word because it's really a, an in, in, inner feeling. I will not give up. Determination to go on. You know, I read some things about marathon runners and they were talking about the last 10% of the race is the hardest part of the race. And I thought it was interesting because it kind of gave some, some, some clues as to what does it take to finish a marathon. Now, I would never imagine even trying to start a marathon, but for those who do run those, here's some things. You know, there are a lot of practical things like hydrate and all this, but some, some kind of more philosophical things it said was tell yourself you will finish. So if, tell yourself that you will finish the race. Another thing I saw that seemed interesting was find a partner to help keep you motivated. So some recommendations that people had for finishing something that, were, that was very hard was just to remind yourself that you will finish and find somebody to help keep you motivated. 
And as I thought about that, I thought, well, they're kind of missing one. Number one is you have to choose to start the race. And I think we kind of find ourselves at different points in the race, right? Our spiritual walk is a journey. It's not a one-time decision in our life, but rather it's a journey where we continually trust God with all that we have. And each one of us is kind of at a different part in our race. We have some people who maybe are in that, that final stretch. We have some people who maybe are just making decisions to start the race. We have other people who maybe are in the middle and kind of wondering what in the world is going on here. But here it is, our steadfast faithfulness. If we want to see God's promises fulfilled in our lives, it takes steadfast faithfulness on our part to serve Him our whole life. So if we were to wrap up this thing just like a movie and and kind of end it here, we would all be happy, that would be okay, we'd be kind of content, it would be a movie, but I, I kind of gave you guys a little bit of a hint here. I love kind of endings that have a twist, and this isn't a good twist at an ending, it's kind of a bad twist, because what ends up happening is if you turn over just a few pages into the book of Judges, just the first part of the book of Judges, and I kind of feel like this is kind of really the ending of of Joshua here. It's the beginning of Judges, but the ending of Joshua, these two periods are overlapping each other, and I don't want to read the whole chapter because I want us to kind of, there's a lot of verses there, but I want us to kind of get this, and I'm just going to highlight a few things. What ends up happening after Joshua dies, it says here, after the death of Joshua, just reading verse 1, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for, and, uh, up first for us against the Canaanites to fight them? Because the reality was, even though Joshua was die, has died, there were still plenty of enemies in the land. And God had told them repeatedly to go and, and drive them out and continually push them out. And so even though a lot of the main battles have been won, there were still other things to fight. There are still other jobs that needed to be done. It wasn't over. And so just because Joshua was dead, they were started to inquire of the Lord and say, who, who should we go and, and, and what should we do? And, and God sends them and they go and they, they win battles. And in verse 4 it says, Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And then down in verse 8, it says, The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And then in verse 11, it says, From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, and they defeated them. And then down in verse 17, it says, They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zabbath and devoted it to destruction. So they're winning these battles, and things are going well, this really... A group that is fighting these things. And it says, And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove them out from there. And the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you'll know what happens. That's not good. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem till this day. And the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So they continued to fight battles, but then all of a sudden we kind of get down to verse 27, and we realize that while there is a group here who is fighting these battles, the vast majority are not. The vast majority, instead of continuing to grab a hold of what God had told them that they could have, decide just, just to not. And it says down in verse 27, it says, Manasseh. They did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sharon and its villages, 
or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. They just became complacent. In verse 29, it says, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. In verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of uh, Nephilim. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject, uh, subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. They're the inhabitants of Sidon. So they lived with them. They lived with the Canaanites in the land. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. And they lived among the Canaanites, and they inhabited the land. And it goes on to say in verse 34 that the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down from, uh, to the plain. And the Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres. And it goes on to say, but the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. So as we read the first passage of the first chapter of the book of Judges, we realize while things may be kind of ended, they didn't really end well. You have this story that at first sounds good if you were to just kind of wrap things up at the end of Joshua, but if you just read that very next chapter, you realize things are already not off to a good start. They're really not off to a good start. Because the reality is there is this other account here of the death of Joshua, which we'll look at in just a second, that gives us some indication of what the problem began to be. So as we look at this, you know, I want us to understand, as we look at this in Judges chapter 1, they settled. The reality is what happened to them was they chose to settle. They settled for what I'm just going to call good enough. They settled for complacency. They didn't want to finish the task that God had given them. And so what's the result? The result is God had given them this great promise when they entered the land. You know, you're going to have this land and that land and that land and that land, and it's going to be all yours, and you can have it. What ends up happening kind of the end of the story is it's really an incomplete promise. Really, it's not really totally fulfilled. And maybe the people, maybe what, what it is, they thought, yeah, we did it, we, we've done this, we fought these battles and Joshua led us. But maybe they just became complacent with good enough and they just thought maybe this is better. This is better than the wilderness. Hey, you know, we're, we're here, we got a town, we got a place, we're not wandering around, you know, we don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore. So this is pretty good. Or maybe they thought, you know, we've, we fought so much already. Like, you know, man, I'm just tired. I, I, can't, I can't fight anymore. Or maybe it was just kind of, they dismissed it. And like, oh, there's only a few over here. You know, they're not really, that's nothing to worry about. So I imagine in their mind as they decided, as some of these tribes decided, no, we're just not really going to finish doing this. They, they settle for good enough. And I want to draw an application to us here because sometimes I feel like when we look at what, especially as you get into the book of Judges and continue, the people of Israel are a picture of us. They are a mirror of our relationship with God. 
Because sometimes don't we do the same thing? You know, we just settle in our life as Christians with just good enough. Not ever to really kind of strive towards the best things that God has for us. I think we do do it for the same reasons. We're comfortable. Yeah, I'm good. You know, I got a nice comfy pew to sit on. You know, this is, this is nice. It's just kind of routine. Maybe we might say, you know, God, I, I'm, I'm tired, you know, to, like, to, to really grow in my walk. It takes work and discipline, and I'm just kind of worn out. Or maybe we're even scared, you know. We're kind of worried about what, what God may lead us to do because he might lead us to do something that's a little bit outside of the box. Or even sometimes it may just because, be because it's hard, and we don't want to do that. We live in a place just like the Israelites of unrealized potential of the promises of God that he gives to us. We're limited by our own willingness just to settle for good enough instead of for all that God has for us. Now say this, you know, can God, can God set you free? Yes, God can set you free. Can God give us power and boldness? Yes, he can. Can God use this church to impact the west side of Jacksonville? He can. Yes, he can. Why, why maybe do we not see that realized in full? I would say a lot of the same reasons that the Israelites didn't really receive and get into what all that God had for them are some of the same reasons we hold ourselves back by our own willingness to settle for good enough instead of what all that God has for us. And I want us to really identify with these Israelites here because it is a picture of who we are. If we look back at their story, I think you'll kind of identify with a little bit more. I mean, they were in bondage, right? They were in, they were in Egypt. And God set them free from that bondage. Were we in bondage? And God set us free? He did. But just like the Israelites, even though they were free, they're kind of cantankerous and they go out there in the wilderness and they kind of disobey and they kind of do their own thing and they wonder whether they even should have made that decision. They want to go back to, to Egypt. In the same way, you know, God sets us free and maybe sets us on this new path and this new life, but we question about whether... This is what we should be doing. And God tells us what he wants us to do, and yet we don't do it. We decide to do things our own way. And God tells them over and over and over again about the great things that he has in store for them. Like, I've got this promised land. I've got this place for you. These great things I want to give you. But instead, the people of Israel, they're wandering around in the desert. They're just kind of content to be out there. But finally, under the leadership of Joshua, they, they get bold enough. Or let me say this, probably it's Joshua was bold enough. I still don't, I'm still not convinced that the Israelites were even really. Probably Caleb was on board because he seemed like a scrappy old guy. But Joshua, <laughs> it was probably mostly Joshua. I still think sometimes he probably drugged uh, the rest of the people with him. But he was bold. But finally they get bold enough to take God at his word and they cross over the Jordan. And what did they do? They see miracle after miracle after miracle. They see God do great things. Yes, yeah, sometimes they stumble, but God continues to be with them, and he leads them to victory after victory. But then almost at the point of fullness, they grow comfortable and complacent. 
and don't ever seize all that God really has for them or all that God can give them. So as I'm holding up this mirror, I hope that you can see yourself because when I, when I studied this, I saw myself. I saw myself at times in my life where I just settled for good enough in my walk with the Lord. I settled with, you know, I'm comfortable in my walk with the Lord. I'm comfortable that, and you have to understand from a, from a pastoral perspective, you know, I, I've been to seminary and I've studied these books. I've took classes on Joshua and Judges for a year and, and I, I studied these books. And so it's easy for me to say, you know what, I've read that before. I've studied that before. I've done that before. I don't need to do that. And so part of what I've enjoyed about studying this book again is God has reawakened it in my heart that, you know what, God always has more. There's always more. There's always a next step for us. There's always something new and fresh for us. But what holds us back from seeing that is our own unwillingness to just settle on things that God has greater things for us. So the reality is, there is a past, there is a present, and there's a future nature to the promises of God. There is a past of the promises that He has brought to fruition in our life. There is what He is currently doing in our life. And then, even more, there's what He will do in our life, or even will do in the future. So while you know we may read the story and kind of understand it in, the, in this way. If, it, if this was a movie, this would be a bad ending, right? It wouldn't be a good ending. We're like, oh, I just sat here and studied this whole book, and, and this is the ending. Like, you would feel like you wasted your, your time and your money. You ever, ever been to a movie like that? You're just like, I watched this movie for three hours, and this is, this is it. Well, the reality is, this is part of the story that God is writing in the world. So what I want us to do is just to kind of flip another page over here, to Judges 2. And I want us to read real quickly another kind of recap of the death of Joshua. In Judges 2, in verse 6, it tells us a similar story. Uh, in Judges 2, verse 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim. So similar story there. But as you start to read the next verse, it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So all of Joshua's generation and the generation that immediately took hold of the land went away. As time does, time passes. It says, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There comes another generation, another, another people that come there and, and they, they have not heard, nor do they understand, nor have they seen it demonstrated, the great things that God has done. And so they don't take hold of that. Instead, they look at their surroundings and the things that are going on around them, and they just kind of figure it out for themselves. Now, I want to say this is the generation that we have, that we live in. We have a generation of, of, 
faithfulness to the Lord. And, and this isn't just something that happens. It's something that happens with every generation. If we don't intentionally pass down our faith to the next generation, there will be none. They will be just like this generation, and they will try to figure it out for themselves. They will try to do whatever they feel is right. So there was a breakdown in the passing of the testimony and faith to the next generation. And so there becomes this generation who doesn't remember the great things that God has done. Doesn't remember how God split the Red Sea. They don't remember how God led the people across the Jordan River. They don't remember the Battle of Jericho. They don't remember all the things that God had done and the victories that God had won for His people. It's just, this is where I'm at. This is my life. And they choose to live their life however they, they so do. And we find ourselves in a similar situation today where we have a generation, they call them the nuns. You know, maybe you all probably have heard that. The, the, the largest growing religious segment is this nun. Is this group of people who decide that, you know what? I just don't need religion. I don't have any religious affiliation at all. Didn't grow up with it. Don't really need it. I just kind of figure things out for myself. And so what ends up happening with that, because they don't have any grounding or any uh, tradition or, or expectation or testimony or, or faith passed down to them, they go and they figure it out for themselves. They go and live their life however they see fit. So how do we do that? How do we pass down our faith? I just wrote down three things quickly that have become important in my life. Now, my kids are young, and I've told them some of these, and there's more stories to tell. But some ways that we can pass that down is to tell them, tell your children and, and those around you, not just your children, but tell them your story of God's faithfulness. Not just, not just from here. What God has done in your life. They'll learn this. If you keep them in church, they'll, they'll learn this. But what they won't learn from that is your testimony of God's faithfulness. Tell them your story. Tell them what God has done. Write things down so that they can see them, and they can have them, they can grab a hold of them. The second thing I put down, live your faith out in front of them. For a long time, we, we just kind of lived our faith on Sunday morning in America. We realized that's part of what has led to this. We have to show the next generation that this isn't just a hobby or a tradition, but rather this is something that is real to us. And we live it out in front of them and show them, and it affects the way that we live our life. It affects the way that we interact with people and how we see the world. And we bring them in on that. We show them that. Another thing I put is teach them how to love and obey the Lord. I think this is why it was so important for Joshua. He, he was kind of like the idea, he, he, he goes out the door, but he has one more thing to tell them. He goes out the door, but he has, wait, wait, I have one more thing to tell you. He's like constantly reminding them to love and obey the Lord. And I just put this down real quickly in chapter 23. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Just as he reminded them, he says, Be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses turning aside from it neither to the right or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. 
consistently. And there in verse 11, he says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. One thing I love about Joshua is he's constantly reminding us not just to obey, but to love God with our heart. And he even reminds me of what Joshua probably, uh, what God told Joshua in chapter one of the book. God tells him, he says, do not, in a similar way, do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you be careful to do all that is according uh, to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And so what is Joshua doing here? He's really passing on the things that God told him at the very beginning of this whole thing. He's passing that on to that next generation. Well, I would like to say, you know, maybe things turn around here, but the reality is that they don't, because if you keep reading down in verse 11, it says, The people of Israel, what did they do? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the balls, and they abandoned the Lord. Man, that's harsh. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. That lack of obedience of the generation previous to fully obey what God had told them to do has consequences in this next generation. Because what ends up happening is they, the people who are around them, they, they start hanging out with them, they start seeing what they're doing, and yeah, I want to be a part of that. So they go and they do that. And they end up abandoning the Lord, the one who gave them the land, the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt, the one who went and did miracle after miracle while all these other gods were just you know, wood totem poles in, in, in a corner, okay? God, the true God, the one true God, who consistently delivered them time after time and after time again, even after their own disobedience gets forgotten about. Man, I, for me to think about the Lord being forgotten, can you think about that? All that He has done in your life, Maybe two generations later, no one even knows about it. No one, everybody's forgotten about God. And that scares me. I want to make sure that they, the generation, at least within my ability to influence, remembers the Lord and obeys Him. So they forsake the Lord. And so what ends up happening is in verse 14, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. They're not obeying him. He's, they've forgotten him. They've abandoned him. So he gives them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. He's not with them. He's not protecting them. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was not just not with them. And I think this is important here. It says that the, Lord, the hand of the Lord was against them. Because the reality for each one of us is we are, without the grace of God, enemies of God. If it wasn't for His grace and love for us, we are enemies of God. So His hand is against them for harm. And the Lord, just as the Lord had warned, had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. So, 
The very hand that blessed them, that saw after them, that gave them the land is now working against them. And that's really the setup for the book of Judges and the cycle that happens where they run to the Lord and then they forsake the Lord and they run to the Lord and they forsake the Lord. But man, what a terrible ending. And I say that because maybe, maybe you might ask yourself, was this all for nothing? You know, all this that we studied, was it all really for nothing? Was this like a complete waste of time? No. Because here's the thing. For us, this is just one little part of the great story that God is writing. One little part. And if this is all we had, yeah, that would be kind of depressing. Okay, this is it. This is all we... But instead, we can look at this and we can take examples and we can take the words of Joshua to heart and we can understand what God desires for us. And then what we can do is we can turn the page. And we can keep turning the pages and we can keep reading about what God did. And man, are there some great stories of God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. And here it is. God knew that this would happen. He knew that this was going to happen at the very very moment they stepped across the Jordan River. God knew that the generations after them would not obey Him, would not seek after Him, and they would abandon Him. He knew He was dealing with a group of people who didn't have the obedience to see His promises fulfilled. He knew that. He knew that they would never take hold of all the things that God had for them, that He had for them. And so what I want to do is, instead of kind of ending on that note, I want to end in a little different direction with some hope. Because the reality is for us, we, as we strive and strive and strive, will never totally see God's promises and total fulfillment in our life. Because we struggle. We struggle. Okay, we know, we, we try and we fail and we, and we, 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 we attempt and then we, we, we hold back or maybe we get complacent and uncomfortable. You know, and for us, I'm thankful that even though God knows that about us, that he didn't leave us there. As I was reading this, I was reminded of Romans chapter 5. In verse 6, where it says this, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. <laughs> because the reality is God isn't waiting around for us to become perfect. Okay? He's not waiting around for us to be this perfect Christian and somehow figure it all out and and like it's some sort of Rubik's Cube that we can figure out. God wants us to be faithful in our life and continue to strive after all that He has for us. But it's not dependent on us. And so what I love about that passage is that while we were weak, God knows that we are not going to be able to do all that He wants us to do. We are weak. God knows that about us. And what's so great about this is He knew that they were weak. He knows that all these people are weak. Why? Because we battle with sin. We battle with, with our own pride. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us any less. Because it was part of His plan. <laughs> it was part of the plan that while we were weak, that Christ would die for us. And I love verse 8, it says, But God shows His love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus wasn't waiting for us to become perfect for us to, to die for us. He wasn't waiting for us to figure it out because we won't. We can't. God knows that we're going to strive and we're going to fail. So for us, understanding that God has a plan and a purpose, and that He is working things out. You know, I don't want to say that this is... It's good news, okay? It's hopeful news. And I hope, I hope maybe in some ways I kind of let you off the hook. And even though we study this and we, we, we need to do these things and God has great things in store for us, if we strive after Him, don't, don't be striving after perfection. Because it can never re- really be truly obtained. What we're supposed to do is our hearts are supposed to strive after obedience and obeying the Lord and what He has for us. And Pastor Joe in, in Bible study group a few weeks ago, we were talking about kind of this question. How much of this is really our doing? <laughs> and how much of it is God's doing? Man, there, that is just like, that is like a big rock of a question. And we had some discussion in the men's class, and it was really good. But ultimately, we settled on the fact that we all know is true, and that it's not about us. That it's all about Him and what He's working out in our life. And He works with broken people to accomplish His purposes and plans and promises. And I love that. I had heard old preacher basically say, like, he's, he's the only person who can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. <laughs> for us, it's not about us becoming perfect. It's about us being obedient to what He has for us. So while we may, we may live in this presentness of God's promises and we're striving to be what God wants us to be, you know, and we may not ever kind of truly grab a hold of it in its entirety, God is making plans for something better. And there is a future promise. And I don't know if it's because I turned 40, year, 40 years old this year. <laughs> there is a future promise that I continually look I continue to look more and more forward to where the struggle is no more, where we can experience God's freedom in fullness, where we can experience His promise and His plans in fullness. And understand that. That is a good day. That's what this book tells us, a future that God has. So God was and God is And God will work out His plans and promises to completion. It's not on us. But we can be faithful to do what God has called us to do. So kind of in closing this morning, I just want to say this. Maybe you've never experienced God's promises. Maybe that's still kind of a vague thing to you. You're not really sure exactly what that means. And and you're just kind of catching this, this Joshua study here at the end. And I'm excited for what God has for us next as we study Ephesians. But Maybe you're just catching that. You're kind of like, I kind of missed it. Uh, You know, God has great things for you. I want you to know that. God can do great things in your life as you submit yourself to Him. And maybe kind of to bring it back to this this, uh, marathon kind of illustration, maybe some of us are at the starting line. We're still trying to decide if we want to run this race. Maybe some of us are kind of like halfway and deciding whether we should even try to finish. Maybe some of us are in the the last stretch and we just want to give up, but we're determined not to. 
So as we close, and I pray, I just want to say, you know, if the Lord is leading you to respond, please do. And we've got a place for you and we can help you.